you are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. I've got that listed out in just a little bit, but I want us to go ahead and turn there. Uh, tonight, as we're looking at missions, we're going to talk about something holistic mission specifically. And what that looks like, and, and basically is that, um, I know you can't imagine this, but sometimes the church gets in disagreements about stuff. You know, religious folks can't always figure out and agree on all the aspects of what does it mean to follow Christ in a world that needs to know Him. So what we're going to look at tonight is this concept of holistic mission. And this is the idea that throughout the years, Christianity has struggled to maintain the proper balance of sharing both the gospel and this word called compassion, okay? And as followers of Jesus, we are called to display his kindness in both word and deed. So what we're going to look at tonight, if you didn't know this, there is a group of people uh, out in the world today throughout history, but also right now in the church and made up of different denominational lines or different ways that we process things. Some people would say, we just need to preach the gospel and don't worry about those that are in need, okay? And some would say, we don't really need to start the whole preaching the gospel thing. We just need to take care of needs. And as you can probably y'all can go, well, the answer is, can't we just do both? The answer, sure, we can just go ahead and say amen and move on from there. But we really need to understand why that is. And so to do so, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2 just for a moment. Um, and if we look at this imagery, if you will, there is a reminder. Some of you are so church that you know exactly what this story is before we read it, right? Um, Mark chapter 2 tells about a paralytic who's brought to Jesus. And uh, just so that you're aware, if you are a paralytic and you're going to go see Jesus, it implies you got to have somebody who takes you to him, right? You can't go on your own. So this implies this need, if you will, to have some good set of friends. So, so let's look at chapter 2, verse number 1. It says, when, speaking of Jesus, he entered Capernaum again after some days... It was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. So let's just pause there for a moment. So Jesus comes into town. There's such an uproar that they move into somebody's house. They're having kind of a little uh, service there. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's doing his thing. And it's a full house. Nobody can move. Nobody can get in. And so people are walking into the door, and they are completely on overflow status, right? They don't have live stream pipe into the next house. If you're not in the room, you're not getting close to Jesus. So there's a group of friends that you got to read into this a little bit, but you understand, obviously, they had heard about Jesus. And if you are friends with a guy who's paralyzed, who lives on a mat, he can't come see you. You've got to go see him, right? Makes sense, right? That if you're going to have a relationship, they've got to go see him. These four friends have been so consistent in his life that I envision this as my sanctified imagination, if you will. Kind of thinking one day, all right, well, um, you know, we, we've heard about this holy man that's walking through. And actually, we've heard he, he can heal some folks. And I can imagine the guy on the mat goes, yeah, we've heard that before, but they never come by this way where I'm at. Yeah, but we heard he's going to be at so-and-so's house, and we thought, I don't know, maybe we could go over there. How are we going to get there? We're going to carry you like we tried to carry you last time, right? And I don't know if we need to go. Maybe we shouldn't. Like, what are we going to do? And they just pick him up, and they start walking, right? And here comes 
these five friends, one on a mat, four kind of surrounding, and they walk all the way across town, get to this house, doors closed. That's not enough for these guys, right? Because it says, verse 4, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Now, did any of y'all ever had friends this crazy that would do something like this? Okay, by the way, okay. I've had friends that are just that out of their mind, like, what do you mean we can't get in? Oh, I bet you we can get in. Y'all, y'all, there's a ladder, right? Okay, and they just decide, they take matters, they're so desperate, climb up to a house and start removing part of the ceiling, right? Part of the roof. And I know it's not like somebody's taking a jigsaw to try to like get, get a sheetrock. I, I know it's a little bit different back in those days, but can you, be, can you imagine being the dude whose house invited Jesus in? I'll get you another further. Can you imagine the dudette, the lady who likes a nice, orderly, neat house, and all of a sudden you start seeing dust fall down in the house. You're going, where's this from? What's going on here? And all of a sudden it just continues to come down. And then all of a sudden, just a section of the ceiling just removed. And then all of a sudden four faces just go, whew, you know, like look down. And then all of a sudden they start lowering this guy. And I mean, I just picture, we, we see a, a picture kind of like this, which is probably uh, pretty accurate to what it was. I doubt it was the most, not the uh, most stable pulley type system going down, right? I imagine there's a couple of moments where it's, it's moving and shaking and he's worried if he's going to you know, tip over or fall out. And I also imagine if you think about the perspective as he is lowered down, that he's on his back, he can't see anybody just till he gets by eye level with everybody in the room. And I just have to imagine somewhere along the way he saw some people who were not very thrilled that he was interrupting their worship service. Think so? Church folk going... Not on my order of service. You know, like somebody is doing that. Somebody's frustrated. He's busting up the house. Somebody's frustrated. All, all this kind of stuff's happening. So he's lowered down in there. And, and I, my, my imagination always goes, and then he locks eyes with somebody that he doesn't know, but he thinks I'm just going to keep staring at him because he looks happy that I'm here. It's Jesus. You may not be on their order, but you're on mine. I, I knew you were coming. And he goes down, and... Uh, Verse 5, this is a crazy thought. Seeing their faith. Whose faith? Four friends, right? We believe you can do something about him, Jesus. We're believing. We're praying. We know you're the one. You can do this, Jesus. Seeing their faith. Jesus told the paralytic not what he expected to hear. What do you think the paralytic was hoping to hear? Hill, get up and walk. Pick up your pallet and go home. And instead, after all of his life, hoping that some holy man would say, get up, walk, pick up your pallet, go home. This one said, your sins are forgiven. And we don't hear him say this, but I imagine there's a point he goes, well, what about my legs? I didn't come to you about my sin. I came about my legs. Like, I want to walk. And Jesus goes, yeah, but you got an issue that's even worse than you being paralyzed. You're spiritually crippled. And that's what I'm going to focus on because that's more important. Now, look what happens though. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. There's only one person who can forgive sins. That's God. And this Jewish carpenter just said, your sins are forgiven. Problem. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, 
Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astonished and gave glory to who? To God, saying, I've never seen anything like this. Now, I bring this moment in the ministry of Jesus to our to the beginning of this for us to unpack because this is so very important to see because I think we do a disservice to the word of God when we act as if the gospel and compassion are enemies to each other Jesus prioritized this man's spiritual condition but he also cared about the physical one and I think sometimes we almost act as if these two processes are enemies to each other. And what happens in the church is oftentimes we see something done in a poor way. And so we swing the pendulum way too far. So uh, I'll give you an example. Have any of you ever come into contact with someone that would label themselves a street preacher? Anybody? Trying to have a just hang out with your friend, going out with your lady, something like this, and all of a sudden you walk up and there's somebody in the corner saying, Repent or else you're going to get it. Right? And you may have thought, Go get them. Or you may have been offended and you go, I don't know if that's the right way. Some of you kind of get a little queasy when it's happening. Like, I don't, I don't know if I want Christians to be identified with that guy yelling at everybody. Right? And so what happens? Instead of us coming to a good place, a lot of times we go, Just don't tell anybody they got to change at all. You, you see that? Instead of like saying, okay, there, there is, sometimes I've, I've heard street preachers, I go, no, I agree with that, agree with that, agree with that. Just don't agree with the way you're doing it, right? So, so what do we do? Sometimes we swing too far. In this situation, Jesus cared about this man's healing, but he cared about his spiritual condition more importantly. He knew that forgiveness was more important than healing. And so, yet... He also addressed both because not only was he God in the flesh, he had the authority to do so. Pharisees knew it. You can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. He goes, watch me prove that I can. Get up. Walk. Any other questions? So for those, I don't know if Jesus ever claimed to be God. Oh, he did. Even in this moment, early on. Pharisees knew what he was doing. And he bought not at all at it in any stretch of the imagination. And yet, oftentimes, what do we see Jesus through the Gospels doing? Feeding, caring, ministering, healing, helping, assisting. There is a physical nature to what Jesus did. But can I say that oftentimes it was an avenue to get to the real issue and that was our spiritual condition. So you can give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, but if you never mention Jesus' name, have you ever really helped them? And so that that's kind of the context we got to kind of figure out tonight so let me give you a little church history on how this lays out right at the beginning of the 20th century the church became sharply divided on how to prioritize two things word and what deed what does the word of god say what do we need to do what does truth proclaim what does doctrine teach what is that word aspect we must teach and proclaim be unashamed about but also What's the deed? What were the actions? How are we supposed to help and minister and care to? And at the beginning of the 20th century, some of y'all remember that, um, the church 
became sharply divided on these two issues, right? On how do we handle it? So both the fundamentalist revivalist movement and the liberal social gospel movement gained traction at the same time and somewhat in response to one another. So there's two groups here. Fundamentalist revivalists. Some of you are like, those are my people. Okay, right? Like those people that are going to bang on the pulpits, turn or burn, come down front, get right or get left, those kind of folks, right? Okay? Some of you would say, not only are they my people, that is me. Okay, like you, you would identify that, no problem there. On the other side, there was this liberal, what's called the social gospel, which is care for the needs of those in the community as an extension of God's grace to them. And what happens is, both of these are gaining traction, and if you will, the pendulum analogy, they're both moving further away from each other because they are disgusted by what they see on the other side, they both move even further. Make sense? So, so let me explain how this works. In the evangelical tradition, for a moment, this group claimed a great reversal took place to limit missions to the verbal proclamation of the gospel. So this evangelical tradition, a great reversal taking place, which basically is this. We don't need to offer a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. We're just going to offer Jesus' name. Get right. That's it. That's what you get. And almost turned a little bit to where they felt like sometimes the assistance, physical assistance to people in need can detract us from the mission. Now, we could see how an abuse of that would happen. This is kind of how they responded. With the decline of society, they surrendered the hope that the gospel would transform societies but focus on the individuals in need of salvation. So they became less and less likely to talk about how the gospel would transform, transform cultures, societies, the world, and just said, world's in trouble, you need Jesus, individual level, and really it's just about the, the soul and not really how it fleshes itself out in our lives. So society going so bad, they go, we're not going to see it transform society, we're going to see it transform individuals. Now, what happens is, once again, responding to something that they see unhealthy, responding to the task of the proponents of social gospel, they hunkered down on the belief that education and reform programs would not usher in the kingdom ethic. So let me explain what that means. They see the other side really focusing on this. If we could just get better education for everybody, we'd all turn out okay. If we just had better reform programs for those who are in trouble, we'd all turn out okay. So let's get some organized, institutionalized situations for young and old, and we'll revamp society through these programs, through education, through reform. Making sense? Okay? I say you agree with it, but is that making sense? So, so they go, no, 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 we're not doing that. We hunker down. That's not the goal. That's not going to work. In fact, we are giving up 100% on it, and they move the other side. Now, the ecumenical tradition was a little bit different. This was the other side. This movement began to prioritize a naturalistic, worldly approach to further human ambitions. So this is not the gospel on a soul level. This is, let's make societies and cultures better. But a lot of it was naturalistic. A lot of the approach was worldly. A lot of the approach was maybe not heavenly ambitions, but human ambitions, right? To make the situation in the world better. Let me change this out.
So with it, what happens is, one of these is going to work. Okay. The desire to teach a man to fish characterized the path forward progress. Y'all ever heard the phrase about the, about the um, feed a man a fish and you feed him for a day, right? Give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach about a fish, you do what? Feed him for a lifetime. Now that makes sense, and I'd agree with that, right? So go in and give a bunch of bottled water to people who are um, dehydrated, or you can help them set up an irrigation system and teach them how to do it so when you're not there, they can drink. That makes perfect sense to me. I'm all for that. But it characterized this whole process to such a level that basically the hope is that by alleviating scenarios for suffering, all people experience a salvation that I'm putting in quotations of sorts in this life. It was get people the amount of drinking water they need, the education they need, out of the poverty that they're in, and society as a whole will be transformed and will experience a type of corporate salvation, if you will. Now, um, <coughs> I say this right now that some of you are already like going, I'm all for that side or I'm all for that side. It's not as clean as a break as you see. A lot of times our traditions and our kind of upbringing allow us to kind of go, that, that's my camp. That's, that's my tribe, how I think through this. But I want to challenge that um, in the same way, there are people in the United States government right now that I disagree with wholeheartedly about 99.79% of everything they say. Okay? There are people like that. Um, and yet, there are sometimes people that I disagree with that they at least come from a place of compassion that I can respect. Does that make sense? They want to alleviate poverty for people. I just may not agree with the way that they want to go about doing it. You follow? So, so sometimes there are people who come out that seem very compassionate. And I go, hey, that's awesome. I just don't think that's the way to do it. Right? So um, in the same way, like, I know that if I continue, uh, as I raise my kids, there are certain things that I can do that help form character, and there are certain things I can do that could delay the formation. Follow? So with this, when we look at these things, it's not so simple to say I fit over to this camp or that camp. So think about it this way. I put this as a question kind of, is there something called a, world, a wordless gospel? And you go, what does a wordless gospel mean? There is a quote that's oftentimes attributed to a guy by the name of St. Francis of Assisi, but a lot of people debate if that's who actually said it. Here's the quote. You ready for it? Preach the gospel when necessary. Use words. Now, first time I heard that, I was like, that's a banging line there. That's awesome. And that's tough, right? That, that's really good. Preach the gospel. And some, some versions will say preach the gospel at all times because when necessary, use words. What is... This quote that's disputed by who have, but is a very prevalent concept today. It is this type of mentality that some people have beaten the Bible over people's heads so much that the world has not seen the compassion there. So it's saying, preach the gospel through your lives and the compassion that you show, and if necessary, use words. Now part of that I go, yes and amen to. The problem is this. The gospel actually has words. Right? Like, let me explain this to you. The gospel, it actually means good what? News. 
Since the gospel is good news, you cannot share it silently. Words must be involved. I cannot preach the gospel at all times and sometimes use words. To preach the gospel must mean that I use words. It cannot be quiet. It cannot be silent. I cannot go mute. I have to share something in word form. Why is that? Because if the gospel literally means good news, here's what you need to know. The gospel is news and not what? It's not instructions. It is the announcement of what Christ has done, not what you must do. So if the gospel is good news, that means you got to share something. So if you got a newspaper and you got it out of your mailbox and there were no words on it, how helpful is that newspaper to you? It's not helpful at all. Are there pictures involved? No, there's nothing involved. You don't know anything. It's just, it's just a, a piece of paper with no words. It communicates nothing. So if we are being kind... In the name of Jesus, but yet never use his name, are we truly being kind? I can offer help to somebody and never slow down their path on the way to hell. Is that helpful? Is that loving? To say, let me make this life more comfortable for you, and I'm not going to worry about where you spend eternity? The gospel is good news. It is a message. It is what Jesus has done. Not what we must do. It is ultimately what Christ has already done. And the gospel message is primarily news about the kingdom of God. When you look at these different passages of scripture like Mark 1.15, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 24.14, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all the nations. Colossians 1.13, Talk about the kingdom of God. The gospel message is this real complex kind of concept about that we are ushering in, not only introducing you to a king, but introducing you to his kingdom. To be a part of what he's doing. To see it as something larger and greater than what we can possibly think. Now, here we go. You're ready for this thought. Because the danger sometimes is, in our individualized society, Jesus means nothing for you, but something that you hold at the soul level. If it never transforms your life, my question is, have you been transformed yet? If, if Jesus changes you, it, it should be overflowing, right? So, if the gospel only centers on the individual, we miss the kingdom aspect of it, and therefore we overlook our responsibilities to the thorough needs of this world. We find ourselves walking away from what God has called us to do. If we only focus on, if I'm honest with you, it's a prayer to pray one time in your life to make sure you don't go to hell. There's more to it than that. If I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that not only changes my Sunday morning, that changes my Monday morning. Everything changes for me. Everything's got to. So with this, there's this kingdom aspect that I'm going, okay, now how can I thoroughly address needs that are around this world? I'll, I'll ask, there are a lot of needs out there. There are spiritual ones. There's mental ones, emotional ones, physical ones, all, all kinds of stuff. And yet, to be a part of the kingdom means that those should be my concern. So, um, even in the last few years and all the issues that have happened in our country over, uh, let's just take the issue of racism, if you will. 
So many times people will not want to listen to the plights and concerns and fears and hurts of people who are not like them because they go, that's not a gospel issue. Well, can I just at least interject this? If it's about individuals that have been made in the image of God that Jesus Christ died for and it bothers them, then it is a gospel issue. It should concern me if it bothers you. And I don't have to say, I'm going to give you my political line on this, that'll fix it. No. Sometimes it... I tell you why this country just completely was ready to burn itself on fire in the last few years is that a bunch of people who've never walked in anybody else's shoes kept telling each other that their feet shouldn't hurt. What's wrong with you? That shouldn't bother you. Why is that hurting? That doesn't hurt. You've never walked where they've walked. Hush your mouth. Listen to them. Weep alongside them. Pray with them. Help come to a satisfying, reasonable conclusion. Stop adding fuel to the fire. And what happens is we go, ah, it's not a gospel issue. What you mean is that's not a gospel presentation of which somebody can repent from. But if this person has been hurt by the fall, by their sin and other people's sin, then that issue becomes a gospel issue. And they've at least got to be sensitive to it. The evangelical focus on an individual misses the kingdom. But the ecumenical focus on a society misses the king. See, both of these, if, if we work too hard, we miss something very, very important. That evangelical focus, sharing the gospel with somebody, it can miss the kingdom aspect of what God is doing among the people and hopefully throughout the world. But if you only focus on transforming a society, you try to make the educational reforms and the poverty reduction and all those things the focus and you miss the king who is saying, now follow me. And we miss some aspect of it. So word and deed, they're not enemies to each other. They can't be enemies to each other. The gospel message, it transcends all cultures, but the messenger must acknowledge the culture of context. So I believe that the gospel message is transformative in the United States of America. I believe it is transformative in the... Um, war-stricken streets of the Sudan uh, and the persecuted areas of China uh, and, and the places like Scotland where it once uh, evangelical kind of reigned supreme and now it's just kind of like the dark ages in those lands. I believe the gospel can work in any of those. It transcends all cultures. Everybody needs to know Jesus. But as I'm a messenger to those different places, i got to acknowledge that there's context in which I walk into situations and people that I'm addressing. So if there's a not a word, wordless gospel, I also want to say some people would say well, there's almost a compassionless Christianity. So let me explain it this way. If the gospel is news for God's kingdom to be restored, the church must provide a tangible taste of that future reality. i give you a real simple way to think about it this way. In the Lord's Prayer, we often pray by memory, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it what? Is in heaven. Wouldn't y'all like to see a taste of heaven in Greenville County? Man, I'd love. What, What would that look like? Jesus is treasured. Racial walls broken down. Hope restored. People renewed broken things, fighting its right. Like, that's what I want. Now, 
Are we going to see that completely in our day in this county? The answer is a fat no. But I ain't giving up on at least experiencing a little bit of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, <coughs> have you all ever been in a worship service where we all sing the same stuff and everything's going on, but like you can just tell something different going on in the room right now? It's just different. Man, what is that? I don't know. If I could dial it up, I'd dial it up every single Sunday, right? Do this, do this, do this, and voila, here it is. Sometimes there's just a special kind of way that God breaks through and just, I don't, I don't know, I don't think it's anything different with the Lord. I think what's different is the people of God ready to respond. If y'all been following along with what's going on in Asbury College Seminary and all this kind of stuff in different places where people are saying there's an awakening, there's a revival, different things happening. I don't think that God just said, you know what I want to do? I ain't shown up in a while. Here we go, right? I think people were looking for him. I think people were eager and desperate for him. And anticipating a move by God and praying for it and fasting for it. And God says, now you ready, right? So why sometimes is, why sometimes we gather in worship, whether it's church or our family or different situations, different ministries, sometimes it's just like we're going through the motions and sometimes it's like, what was that? It's kind of like a taste of heaven sometimes, isn't it? It's not perfect because I'm in the middle of it, okay? I'm there. I, I know it's not perfect. But it's just a small taste and it makes me long for what is to come. Sometimes in Greenville, there are moments where I see walls broken down and lives restored. Folks, I, I've seen people healed. I've seen people who were on the streets renewed and restored and doing well now. I've seen people who are in the gutters that are now leading ministries to get other people out the gutter. I don't know what you call that, but that is a taste of heaven to me. I'm going, yes, Lord, like, come on. And he's going, hey, when we get there, that's all you're going to know. But just sometimes I'm going, oh, God, just give me just a little taste right here. And, and that's what we're, we're wanting, right? So if the gospel is news for God's kingdom to be restored, then what we want in the church is a taste of it. God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. To be identified with Jesus is a promise to operate fully under the values and the concerns of the kingdom. So what happens is, when I identify with Jesus, I am surrendering myself to a higher ethic, to a different purpose than the one for which I was called. And so it allows me to operate fully under the values and concerns of the kingdom. To do so, Reminds us of the early church. Follow this. The early church was distinguished as a community of people in which no needs existed. Isn't that beautiful? I, I, you can turn there, but I, I'm just going to turn this and read it real quick for us. <coughs> but in Acts chapter 4, early church is just getting started. And um, it says in those opening verses of the, the church's formation... They're going through all kinds of persecution and whatnot. But listen to these words. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. That's beautiful. Isn't it? That is absolutely beautiful to me. This isn't mine. It's yours. Do you have something you need? You got it. Then it says, The great power of the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus 
and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. Then what was distributed to each person as any had need. We're not even saying take up an offering. We're saying, how about this? Let's just give it away. What you need? What you need? Oh, there's not enough? I'll sell this piece of land that I inherited, but it, you know, all it was going to be was a retirement program for me. But right now, you're more important. Folks, that's crazy talk, right? That's, that's generosity at a whole different level. Um, yesterday, this uh, gym beside us was full in the early morning of a bunch of stuff. And later on in the morning, it was full with a bunch of people. And our Spanish members here at the church decided to give a free giveaway. So people cleaned out closets and gave away furniture and whatnot. It wasn't a yard sale. It was a, if you need it, come get it. And they had so much stuff in there. I just told everybody, y'all better have a plan for how you're going to get everything out that's not used, right? So we had a couple plans on how to take it to Miracle Hill thrift stores and whatnot. There wasn't anything left after a couple hours. Everything gone. And the cool thing, this Sunday morning, three or four families came to church for the first time in our Spanish service. Why? Because they're down and out, struggling, and somebody cared for them. Just had a tangible need that they met, right? And here are these families who've never been to church, walking to church for the first time because somebody met a need. And, and, and here's the thing, when, when you see something like this happen, like, I've, I was even thinking through, um, years ago, there's a guy coming through the Overcomer program that was much taller than I, okay? I'm about 6'4", and I'd have to look at him about this kind of way, right? Um, and a uh, real tall guy, and at, when he came in, didn't have a whole lot of stuff, and there were not a lot of clothes that fit him at that time. There was a lady in this church whose husband had just recently passed away who was about his size and said, that's a boy who I think, uh, well, my ex-husband, my, my, my past husband, clothes could fit, and gave clothes to this man to say, I want you to have it. And every time he walked into church, it kind of just took her breath for a moment. And she thought, I can't think of a better way to do this than to care for somebody in a legacy of my husband's memory. It's pretty special that day when that man got baptized in a shirt that had been given to him by a lady in this church. Now, now you, you see how this goes, right? These aren't enemies to each other. They, they go alongside, they coincide with each other. And it allows us to be distinguished as a people what if there was no need present among us? Your need becomes my need. My need becomes your need. How can we help? Follow this stat, if you will. 20% of the world's Christians suffer from hunger, while 33% of the world's wealth is attributed to Christians. Now think about that for a moment. 20% of the world's Christians suffer from hunger. So 2 billion Christians or so in the world today, 20% of those are suffering from hunger. But 33% of the entire wealth of the world is attributed to those who follow Jesus. My friends, there's a problem here. There's a disconnect somewhere along the way. And we miss out on the ability to be able to give and show compassion. We will not perfectly create heaven on earth but we should be living to create a foretaste for others to experience. That is the goal. That's what we want to see. We may not see it perfectly or uh, realistically, but we should be living to create 
a foretaste for others to experience. And these last uh, few moments, I want to read uh, for those that are taking credit for this class. There's a textbook called Introducing Christian Mission Today. And I want to read a few of these quotes that I think are really helpful to find this proper balance we're looking for. It says, if love is the key, there are at least three goals. To offer merciful relief, to seek justice, and to hope for conversion. Do you catch all those th three things there? So we want to offer something that shows mercy and it's relieving somebody in a certain situation. Sometimes it's seeking justice that something has been done wrong. But it's also to hope that we're seeing one thing take place and this is it. Conversion, right? Do you know that there are people that I have been in their village with Africa that said, when the famine hit, when the storm hit, when all these horrible things happened, our own religion didn't come to our aid, but you folks came from across the world to minister to us, and that's why I believe in your God. Why? Because our people overlooked our needs, but not the Christians. Why, why, why do you believe in Jesus? Because you helped my husband get the surgery that he needed, and nobody else even batted an eye at it. Sometimes, folks, these things are connected. Missions aims not only at changing the conditions that have created slums, but also the person in the slums. We want to see people converted to Jesus Christ. Folks, I would love for no slums to exist, but at, in the heart of those slums are people with souls. But even if the slums went away, guess what? We can still find ourselves in horrible situations, right, and create new ones. Slums need to be transformed. But to do that means that the people inside them have to be transformed. The church, if it is to offer a faithful witness to the gospel, must be seen as a community that gives itself for the sake of the other, a community that is deeply involved in the needs and concerns of its neighborhood. How do we, as a faithful witness to the gospel, say this? We want to be deeply involved so the needs around us are addressed. And the most important contribution the church can make in the face of the momentous issues and problems of our day is to nourish its people so they can live out the gospel in their various callings. Can I just tell you the quote that was very interesting to me the other day? Um, <clears throat> at Perry Correctional, myself and Pastor David went in to try to see if we could finish up a project that got started years and years ago. In 2019, modular units were brought onto Perry Correctional so that they could be pieced together to form a chapel. In 2019, it is still not operational to this day. I have been told it was not finished. I asked if I could go in and see it. That thing looks just fine. There's chairs in there. There's equipment in there. There's just a few things that have not been done. They are still waiting on this agency and this bureaucratic blah, 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 blah. And I said, can you just let me and some of my friends get in here for about a day and we'll get this thing done? They went, why? Because these men need to get out of the gym and they need to know that there are people on the outside of this place who care for them and want them to have a good place to worship. That's why. And they said, what do you need? You don't need I just need clearance. That's all I need. I need to get in here, and I need to bring some of my friends, and we need to get this thing done. How long will it take you? As, as soon as you get us in here, we'll be done. Why? Because we care for these men. Come on. Now. I, there is an administrative person in that, uh, I'd be careful here, that is very, very anti-everything faith-wise. Hostile to it, trying to get people fired, trying to get people out. 
and I see this individual staring at us. This is how funny it was. We knew we were trying to figure out how to do some things. Pastor David, this is how smart this man is, he went and took his belt off here in the office and measured off a foot on his belt because we knew he couldn't take tools in there. So he gets in there, he takes off his belt, starts measuring certain things so we know exactly what we need to bring in next time and start making stuff so we can bring it in. So we're, we're doing this kind of stuff, and we're talking about, hey, we can do this, and we can bring somebody in here. And, and I catch this person who's very, uh, says they're agnostic, against everything that's been faith-wise, look at somebody else in the administration and said, why do these men want to do this? What's different about them? This person says, they're go- this church is going to see it through till this thing gets done. And this person says, I actually believe it about them. And then comes to me and says, what do you need? And I'll make sure it happens. Now, this is what takes place. And here's, here's what I'm thinking. Meeting a need. Now, this person's like, we're going to get this chapel finished. I'm like, you're on our team. That's awesome. Okay. Really excited about, let's get this thing across the finish line. And, it's also, and what I'm seeing is a softening of a very, very hard heart. And I'm seeing the inmates come up and seeing us go in there and ask us, they said, so you mean to tell us it's been sitting there since 2019, none of us have managed to go in there. You mean we're going to get in there? Oh, we're going to get in there. And we're going to have a throwdown worship party when we get in there. And we're going to celebrate that God hasn't given up on you and neither has his church. And folks, why do we go? Why do we give? Why do we sacrifice? Christ met physical needs, but he also met spiritual ones. And as his church, we are called to do the same as well. Father, I ask that tonight, you would cause us back into balance and not see word and deed as enemy to one another. But we are to share the gospel because it is the only means of salvation. But sometimes these good deeds open up the doors for us to share. Help us be the largest source of compassion and love and kindness that this world has ever seen. And may, if this world hate our message, they have a real hard time hating the messengers. Because we love them. We care for them. We meet needs where possible. And keep addressing the greatest need, which is the spiritual one. So, Lord, until you return, help us to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.